Perfect Plasm episode 103, Verdigree Deep by Francis Harding. So Verdigree Deep is the second novel by Francis Harding, published in 2007. Now, whereas her first novel, Fly by Night, is placed in a wholly secondary fantasy world, you know, invented world, this one is set in ours, although in a fictional English place called Gildley, with uh, several suburbs or surrounding villages. And it has a lot of the sense of 70s and 80s children's tea-time supernatural drama, like um, Children of the Stones or Century Falls or Into the Labyrinth, in that it's a small community with a web of connected characters and a mystery to be unpicked by the child protagonists. So, you know, it's right up my street. As usual, I'm going to do a synopsis, followed by some remarks for role-playing games, and then some complimentary media. So, here we go. So, in summary, three friends in rural England steal coins from a wishing well in order to get their bus fare home, and that awakens a wish-granting god of the well, who grants them powers, but also requires them to fulfil the wishes of the people who, who have also cast coins into the well. And initially the wishes are granted in kind of unexpected ways, but they basically work. But soon this escalates to accidents, floods, um, and even you know, lethal situations. And it becomes a race against time to unpick the mess of wishes before everything is destroyed. Now our primary characters are three friends, who are Josh, Shell and Ryan, who become the Wells Angels, in quotation marks, in the story. That's, they actually refer to themselves as Wells Angels later. So Josh is a sort of boisterous, mischievous, tearaway. He's the one who actually steals the coins. Um, he kind of feels his adoptive parents don't want him. And for that, he's really jealous of Ryan's family. And in particular, he doesn't like Ryan's mum who has him pegged as a bad influence on Ryan. Now, being the most confident, he's also the leader of the trio. He has the biggest personality. Uh, Ryan, then, is this bookish character, and he idolises Josh, and he's also been skipped ahead a year at school, so he's, he's really smart. His mum writes unofficial biographies of people, um, which sometimes the people she's written about don't respond well to. And his dad is a columnist of some kind, and their relationship is all somewhat strained. I mean, they, they tend to conduct conversations by shouting across doorways and separate rooms. And his mum ditches the family regularly to pursue leads for her next book. Uh, so it's kind of um, dysfunctional, and Ryan is caught up in the middle of this, and that's obviously giving him certain anxiety. Finally, Shell lacks confidence but absorbs information readily and babbles it out just as freely and she has a stronger relationship with uh, Ryan than Josh I think. Uh, these three character traits are kind of significant for the powers that they gain as well and Josh gets the power over basically telekinesis and electromagnetism uh, so it's a very physical power then Ryan gets uh, the power of sight, uh, because these, these eyes appear on his hands like boils, and they can see things, um, and that's related to his insightful nature. And then Shell actually get, becomes telepathic. So anyway, uh, for secondary characters, there are the families of the three friends, as well as the wishes that they try to help. So these include people like um, Will Ruthers, who's this 26-year-old introvert living with his mum, and he dreams of riding a Harley-Davidson. There's um, Donna Lees, a young woman obsessed with a celebrity occultist called Mr. Punzel, and she's described as uh, being kind of standoffish, a bit uh, sharp with people, and also dressing in a kind of 
uh, deliberately anachronistic style. So she's not quite a goth, but kind of there. And then there's um, this Carrie, who's an agrophobe who collects strange antiques and who has sealed her house behind these Russian vines so no one can see her. Uh, and, oh, Pipette Macintosh, who's been casting voodoo spells at Ryan's mother. Um, and there's other characters, including mimes, librarians, uh, confused Spanish tour guides. And finally, uh, there's a couple of really important characters of note. And the first is the well spirit itself, uh, called Mother Leathertongue. And she appears mostly to Ryan in dreams and manifests in the waking world through um, posters and animating statues. But then there's also Miss Gossamer, who has her own history with Mother Leathertongue and her Wells Angels, specifically a previous generation of a trio who were you know, in hock to the, the Wells spirit and enacting these wishes. So the hook is simple enough. You know, the kids have been out and about in a rough area of Guildley called Magwhite, and clearly it's a place that their parents don't approve of. So having spent all their money, they take to plundering the wishing well for the bus fare home, and that's the start of their problems. And Ryan has visions of his own reflection streaming well water from his eyes and starts to grow warts on his hands that become eyes and Shell becomes telepathic and unable to stop babbling the thoughts of certain people around her. And people they later work out, those are the people who have made wishes and the people they need to engage with in order to resolve everything. And, of course, Josh gets control over electromagnetic forces. And initially, he just ruins any electrical device near him. But later, he gets control of his powers and he's able to, um, you know, manipulate fruit machines and other devices to his advantage. And another factor early on is Ryan's connection with a dream reality called the Glass House, which is a sort of desolate hellscape of his own house rendered transparent at the edge of an abyss you know it's implied that he's been in contact with this world from an early age but over the course of the story his dreams of the glass house and its surroundings become basically like a spiritual version of magwhite so there's a ravine littered with shopping trolleys lodged into the trees uh, and there's the slopes lead down to the well itself and in this dream world he encounters mother leather tongue and it's through these dream encounters that Ryan can understand the um, the magical mystery behind the wishes and the well god. So then a lot of the book is about granting wishes to the various side characters. So initially things go well with the children manipulating a competition to help Will Ruthers win a Harley Davidson uh, and for Donna Lees to get closer to Mr. Punzel. Then the wish outcomes become darker. So uh, Will has an accident on his motorbike. Uh, a funfair is destroyed to satisfy the wish of a resentful mime and so on. And the powers change the children as well, especially with Josh. Josh sees no real downside to his powers and he fully intends to grant more wishes, no matter how dark, to further exploit his, his power growth. Um, some wishes involve people coming to real harm or even dying, and that comes to a head when Josh tries to kill Ryan's mother. And the resolution comes with Ryan and Shell working out the metaphysical state of things, uh, the way that the wishes represent a transaction between Mother Leathertongue and her worshippers. So the idea is that Mother Leathertongue is an ancient spirit, and in the old days she would have been prey to just to you know make uh, people fall in love or a good harvest so the village didn't starve. As they, as humanity grew, then um, her wishes became more complex, and 
they had multiple meanings. Uh, they described the wishes that she grants as having a sort of an obvious exterior and then a heart that is actually the heart of the will. And it's the idea that there's a nut at the heart of the uh, wish that is actually what is de- what is needed and desired. But then there's a whole lot of thorns around the outside and that's the problems that it causes. I really like that metaphor. Um, but anyway, uh, Mother Leather Tongue is dangerous, but she's not actually evil. She's more a force of nature which has become confused and corrupted by modern humanity. And in fact, the villains in this are all fallible humans who have been perverted by the power on offer. Specifically Josh, who becomes the antagonist towards the end. You know, he's lapping up this more and more power. Um, there's also a character called Miss Gossamer, and she believes the three to be demons, having encountered three similar people in her own past 50 years ago uh, in a notorious part of Gildley's crime history with, where her own daughter was drowned. Uh, and I'm not sure if she actually wished the drowning or if it was a consequence of something else. So importantly, rather than vanquish Mother Leathertongue at the end, the protagonists come to make peace with her and restore the natural equilibrium. So the the final climactic scenes are split between the spiritual world that Ryan calls the real Magwite, you know, the the spiritual essence of the region. Um, But at the same time, in the physical world, things are coming to a head with the witch's power causing floods in the area and everywhere gets flooded to the extent that, you know, the people need to shelter in place and be rescued. The important thing is during these climactic scenes, the side characters, you know, the wishes who have all made these problematic wishes out of some feeling of inferiority or trauma they all come into their own and become better stronger more secure people for it so rather than getting the fairly petty wishes they want that come with you know the dangerous small print they actually get what they really need you know companionship self-esteem the respect of others and not everything is perfect in the end but things are generally resolved for the better where people get what they need and the relationships are better for it and this includes also for the our three lead characters now as i said earlier this setup is one of my favorites you know it's reminiscent for me of tea time children's drama doctor who authors like susan cooper and alan garner so the first remark i have about this setup is the small community you know this goes beyond just the limited number of characters it also emerges in the way the different characters relate to each other in the small community the way that people gain celebrity in small communities how social events are managed and establish the um, social pecking order so early on there's a party at the latimer stones place where they entertain the local community and invite famous people like mr punzel i got the sense that ryan's mother whilst being a minor celebrity is kind of looked down on by the latimer stones because what she writes is salacious and, and not not sort of the official word from the celebrities, you know, and I get this impression because um, their invite to the party is at the last minute. So there's always going to be people who are looked up to and looked down on in this kind of microcosmic hierarchy. And the social events will be dominated by these interactions. In fact, the, the whole relationships that are set up will be dominated by these interactions. And of course, in a small community, these social events will be the dominating part of the community's social calendar. You know, that's the, there's going to be a lot of big fish in a small pond, and they will be always visible unless something happens that, you know, they become ostracised, in which case they were people who just 
disappeared from the social scene. I mean, you've got to think about this, that there would be local authorities like police, so there is a certain amount of appealing to authority that can be done. But those local authorities will still be part of this hierarchy. It's a good chance that, you know, you've got local people um, who are the big fish. They'll have the ear of the chief of police. They will um, they will de-emphasise the, uh, you know, the... The, the law versus the uh, you know the the relationships people have you know it's, it's very much a sort of it's going to be relationships over rules in this kind of situation as well the other thing that strikes me that underscores this sense of small of a small community and a focus on locals is the way there are local myths and true crime stories which are part of the narrative this is Less in evidence in a story like this, which is ultimately about children who are flying under the radar, but the framework of a social calendar, you know, like the village landmarks, is going to be still useful in plotting out this, um, it's not really a sandbox, but it, it's kind of plots out the boundaries of the scenario, if you will. Um, so linking in, that this place has got a history, it has terrible things that have happened here, and Everyone should have some sort of link to that, even if it's sort of second-hand or third-hand. That then makes me think ne about my next point, which is about characters. So there are a bunch of NPCs in this kind of setup, and Vedurite characterises the different people in terms of their flaws and their wishes that they think will overcome those flaws. And I, I thought that was a really elegant way to define your NPCs if you wanted to write a world like this. Um... And of course, it gives rise to your web of relationships, which is how a lot of the time we view the uh, non-player characters. It is kind of like setting up the scenario with a, uh, you know, match this list of wishes to the people or circumstances that can satisfy them. So if you were playing it out like an investigation scenario, then the first thing you'd have to do is find out what a person desires. And in this case, we use supernatural powers from shells, you know, tele telepathy, finding out what people want. Um, another example of that might be uh, Lucifer in the series asking people what they desire. Uh, because that's a really interesting question. I, I thought that it was a bit of a uh, a bit of a gimmick early on when I saw the series, but it's kind of a, an important power. You ask people what they want, then you reveal to the player characters, to the players, the motives that people have, and that then can be an important tool in the uh, in the investigation. Which is why I think it works really well in that. And I've got some other things to say about Lucifer, but it's that's this is not the time. Anyway. Um, you probably need a bit more description if you're going to have a, a looser or more sandboxy investigation, I guess. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, if you're going to write a scenario, and plenty of people have written many, many scenarios, which are good, um, the thing that should happen, and rarely does, is you signpost the scenario with the desires of the NPCs. And you make it so that people can uncover those desires. And um, I've often despaired of lists of NPCs which are defined by colloquially stat blocks or whatnot. Um, because the really interesting things about these characters are usually relegated to the text underneath. So they don't have the same visibility. Uh, and I think it's a habit we should get out of. All right, moving on. Um, so this is a story about people. 
children in this case having power bestowed upon them and stumbling around for a bit trying to work out what to do with their powers. And it's particularly good where it starts off with the powers mostly having downsides. And um, it's put me in mind of Apocalypse World, actually, uh, you know, to view this mechanically. So, you know, in Apocalypse World, one of the MC moves is to activate the downside of a PC stuff. Now, you take that to be equipment, but it could be powers as well. Uh, in fact, the Powered by Apocalypse approach is probably very well suited to a game with power use generally because you can write custom moves where the various defined good and bad outcomes are in a you know just a single box of text which is uh, and, and you roll the dice and those give you the outcomes and they push you in certain directions i think also um speaking of power by the apocalypse we can learn a lot from monster hearts when we're talking about designing small um small communities because it does really well with its homeroom set up and focus on young people although they're usually teens rather than preteens but you know you get the idea so i think that power by the apocalypse is going to be very suited for people who are trying out their powers where there may be some uh downsides and you want to illustrate those downsides as part of the uh scenario the adventure whatever and speaking of powers then um on my last point um the supernatural powers are really nicely presented as well. I, I think it's worth you know just looking at those for the way that they are presented, um, how they manifest physically on the characters like the eyes on Ryan's hands, um, or how they manifest in a scene like Shell's telepathic powers. And there's also the supernatural landscape that looks really good. I like the glass house very much. Um, as uh, the the idea, I mean, I've always loved mage and werewolf for the idea of the gauntlet and the spirit world, this pocket universe, this microcosm of what the the very essence of Magwite is presented here, and that becomes the the spiritual focus of the story. But there's a there's also a couple of other motifs that are worth mentioning as part of the general weirdness. There's the there's a theme of shopping trolleys being animated by the witch and used to herd the characters in different directions at certain points in the story. Um, there's also the witch appearing on posters and animating statues and people's reflections. You know, it's all low-level, magical, weird stuff in an otherwise mundane world, and it's it's easy to overlook. Um, of course, towards the end of the story, we see more overt, strangers-like sort of plants growing rapidly and floods. But then they're still things that most people would readily dismiss. Now, one other thing about the supernatural here is it manifests secondhand in some characters, specifically Miss Gossamer. You know, she's been a victim of the witch in the past. Uh, and as a result, she is basically spying on the children and calling them demons. And I think that as, as well as the primary characters and their magical powers, it's worth considering all the people with... Um, uh, secondary experiences of the supernatural in the community and the way this supernatural manifests in the local history. You know, in this case, the fact that the trio of Josh, Ryan and Shell are not the first three to do the witch's bidding and harm has already been caused. Uh, and also with the supernatural weirdness in the area's past, I guess you'd get, it would attract weird people. Um, who will rationalise it as uh, an actual ghostly activity that they're seeing. You know, it will attract occultists like Mr. Punzel um, 
or ghost hunters or other cranks who are mostly dismissed and, like the children, they fly under the radar. Okay, as usual, to round off the episode, I'm going to talk about some media. And the media I'm thinking of this time is the kind of fiction where a protagonist helps a bunch of people in the community one by one and resolves their problems for them. The main one I'm thinking about is Amelie, a uh, 2001 comedy by Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who also did Delicatessen, City of Lost Children and others. And that's all about uh, complicated schemes of Amelie to solve the various life problems of the people around her in the community. Now, this formula has been used in a few other different examples, um, mostly TV shows, I think. There's a series called Wonderfuls, which uh, from 2004, it's an American series about a sales clerk in a Niagara Falls gift shop who talks with various animal figurines to uh, who direct her to help people in need in five mysterious ways. I haven't seen it. Somebody lent it to me, but it was a Region 1 DVD and we never got to watch it. Um, but they described it very much like Amelie in that it's an episodic helping people through obscure machinations. And uh, I think that that is kind of a, a very um, non-violent, non-confrontational and uh, positive way of, of thinking about um, a kind of monster of the week scenario. Other examples of this that strike me, I, th- I think Tim Kring, who did Heroes, he did a, something called Touch, which um, didn't last too long. And it was about, um, I think it was a father being led around by his autistic son, or I can't remember if it was son or daughter or something, um, but led into situations where he helped people. I guess The Littlest Hobo is another example as well. Um, But this general setup of helping people instead of, you know, uncovering horrors, um, I think that that might be the core activity that we focus on rather than the fact that they've been entrapped by this monster. Now, the um, the entrapment by power, of course, is still a powerful theme and you might want to explore that. And I like the idea, as I said earlier, about people being having, having power pushed upon them and then not knowing what to do with it, causing more harm than good, not realising the full ramifications of their power. But um, this format of helping a different group of people each week um it's pretty much a staple of a lot of episodic stories particularly things like uh i don't know leverage and and um and you know the, the modern sherlock holmes various iterations another one is joan of arcadia and i think that the hook there is and the hook there is according to wikipedia that um joan made a bargain with god that you know she he'd save her brother's life from a car crash and then she had to do good. So God then appears, manifest as different people, you know, children, old people, anyone that's giving Joan a, um, a fairly cryptic mission of something to do. And then she resolves that by the end of the episode. So the victory conditions in all of those are uh, people being brought closer together or having their personal problems resolved or the path that they're on diverted. There are a few other series I could mention, including things like Twin Peaks and other weird rural community type things where, you know, it's magical realism. Um, they also form, you know, a, a, a cool part of my foundation of, of the kind of fiction I like to read, you know, sort of small communities, magical realism, that kind of thing. Um, but once again, I think it it's more interesting to focus on 
the helping other people kind of activity. So anyway, I think that is it for this episode. Um, Like, share, subscribe, whatever, if you enjoyed the episode. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. And check out my Patreon if you want to support this podcast. Otherwise, thanks for listening. And the music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chrisabriskie.com. Until next time, bye.